This message by Sam Shin, entitled Three Pronouns for Discernment, was recorded at Wall Spring Church on March 8, 2020. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So really, this passage is a continuation of verses 1 through 3. And if you were here last week, verses 1 through 3 began with this command of test the spirits. And we continue with that theme of the idea of how do we test the spirits? How do we discern what is truth? As the last verse, verse 6 says, versus what is error? What is truth versus what is error? And the way I want to tackle this part is by looking at it through three sets of pronouns. Now, I know you, again, for those of you who've left English grammar behind since high school, I bring you back to it. A pronoun is not so difficult, but it's to look at discernment and to be able to evaluate what is truth and what is error on the basis of how John describes these three sets of pronouns. First is the pronoun set of we, us. Second is the pronoun set of they and them. And third is actually referring to two different types of he's, actually. John uses the word he to describe two different people. And so we're going to just look at that. So first let's look at the we, us set. That is to say, what is it that makes the characteristics of us? How do... How do we become discerning in our pursuit of Christ, in our life of faith? And what characterizes the people of God, the us, is that we first discern false teaching. That's a key component of what it means to be someone who follows Christ, is that we're actually trying to figure out the difference between false teaching and truth. And it's not something that we become apathetic towards or we think there's no real priority to that. It's it's a priority for us. John writes that the church has overcome them. And that assumes that there is a intentional desire to want to overcome false teaching. That you're going to be making every effort to figure out how do I follow the true gospel? How do I actually follow Jesus Christ? And so we actually can determine false teaching, not just outside. And that's the first thing is that we have this idea that false teaching always happens outside the church. But we spoke a lot about the fact that, and John has gone through great lengths to say that false teaching actually happens quite often inside the church. And so we have to know a few things. First of all, we have to recognize that how a person is in their demeanor or in their sincerity does not automatically equate truth. 
So if a person is compassionate or passionate or sincere, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're speaking truth. In fact, more often than not, we have to be really at least mindful of the fact that we can be dissuaded so easily by someone's sincerity, by passion, by charisma. False teaching is so subtle. In fact, when the, the first instance of Satan comes in scripture is in Genesis chapter three, verse one. And Moses, when describing Satan, says that he was more crafty than all the beasts of the field, meaning that Satan, the devil, by his very nature is absolutely sly and cunning. You cannot hear him approaching. Uh, my son and I, Jack, we've been watching a, a, we like watching survival shows together. And so we've been watching this one on called Alone. I don't know if any of you ever watched that, but in, they drop off these guys as all 10 guys into different parts of, in this instance, it's in uh, British Columbia off of Vancouver Island. And there they have to try to stay as long as they possibly can without knowing how long everybody else is staying. So you have to try to last with only 10 items that you can choose. And on this island are these bears and cougars. The thing about the cougars are though, is that they are about 150 to 200 pounds. And they're abs if you have a cat, you know how quiet they are. They sneak around and you can't even tell they're around until you just see them. Well, a cougar is like that, but it's 150 pounds with fangs and big claws. That's Satan, really. You can't tell he's around because he sounds almost right. See, that's why he's so sneaky. That's why he's so crafty and cunning. It's not that he looks completely evil. He actually looks good. He can look holy. He can look blameless in his own way. And he's very intelligent. One example of this is this idea of what's called polyamory. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, but it's actually been pretty um, much talked about in evangelical scholarly circles today. A few weeks ago, a couple of evangelical theologians wrote an article for Christianity Today that's called Polyamory, the Pastor's Next Sexual Frontier. And it begins by telling the story of Tyler and Amanda. They're married to each other, but Amanda starts having feelings for another man. And typically when that happens, and if left to its sinful end, to its sinful conclusion, she would go off and have an affair and maybe they would get a divorce, maybe not. But what they decided to do was to actually explore a loving relationship between this man her husband and her all together. And the idea that you can have three people essentially either have some sort of loving, even sexual relationship, and possibly the idea of three people being married together. Now, all of you might be thinking, that just sounds, some of you might be thinking, that just sounds absurd. How can that be happening? Well, this is being written about by theologians in a major Christian magazine where they're saying, yes, it is a sin, but we need to get ready for this. But the problem with what their article had concluded was the idea that there are some good benefits 
to this type of relationship. And this is what they wrote. Um, they had said, we can acknowledge that many of the elements that draw people to polyamory, deep relationships, care for others, hospitality, and community are good things. Now, here's the thing. Those theologians, they're evangelical. They're trying to be sincere, compassionate, saying, you know what? There's a whole group of people who are going to feel this way. They're going to come into the church, and we need to be in a place where we can minister to them and care for them, possibly even affirm them. It's not They're still sinning, but we need to really make sure that we're loving them. And this is sort of this envelope that's being pressed over and over again. And once you open that Pandora's box, it just, the, the spirits do not get shoved back into that box. It just, the, the limits keep on getting further and further pressed along. You know, it's almost like two children, two very young children. They're at the edge of a cliff and they're playing together. And the answer to them should not be, well, you know what? You're having such a great time. I know it's such a, just be a little careful because the cliff is right there, but enjoy yourself because we really want to be compassionate to you. There is a real danger. And that danger is so subtle because it sounds compassionate. And yet, is it really compassionate? This is a constant theme in our culture. It's the idea that justice, compassion, while all those things are good, but they're secondary to truth. You lose truth and compassion is truly no longer compassion. But it takes someone who is able to evaluate scripture, think through what are the implications and assess, is this the right approach? This is something that we have to recognize is a part of the church. It will always be a part of the church. Most of the greatest false teachings that are out there in the world started in a church, even a sincere church. The way you overcome them then is you have to know God's word. You have to grow in it. If you don't know God's word, you will succumb to the patterns of this world, to the, to the really crosswinds of culture. They will sweep you over. And according to John, these people who are in the church are well-intentioned. They're generous. They're sometimes kind and compassionate. They're sometimes concerned for the poor and certain justice issues. But Jesus says this. He gives a parable, and then he says in Matthew 13, 26, So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. As long as there are plants, there are weeds. As long as there are the gospel grows, there will also grow anti-gospel. And as anyone who has ever had a vegetable garden or a flower garden, you know when you see a weed, and if you were to let it grow, eventually the flowers come out of that weed, and it actually looks beautiful sometimes. And you think, wow, I'm getting these extra flowers on top of the flowers that I grew, until you realize suddenly your flower or your rose or whatever starts dying because that weed flower is growing. And then you think, okay, I'm going to pull out that weed. So you grab your, put on your gloves, grab your weed, pull it out, and suddenly your rose comes out too. Your tulips come out. That's the nature of what Jesus is saying is that alongside 
truth is going to be non-truth. And if we are not careful enough to discern how to evaluate, then not only will we lose truth, we'll have that we grow alongside of it. So we have to recognize most of all that we are a people who discern false teaching. This is not an option for us. This is something we have to be proactive about. The second idea behind that phrase, we have overcome them in verse 2, is that we are remaining faithful to Christ. What he's saying is that we haven't fallen for them. That no matter who goes with them, because in this church, there were a number of people who were convinced. They were convinced by their sincerity, by their charisma, by their passion. And so they decided, we're going to go with you. They were not of us, and yet they went out from among us. And so you have a group of people who are going, and someone needs to say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to go. That is to say that our friendships, our respect, our commitments, are first and foremost always to Christ and his word. That matters more than everything else. Without Christ and his word, then truly we are but a social club. It is our, our allegiance is to Jesus. It's actually not to one another first. Now, I know that we talk a lot about community, but that community is always subsumed to Christ. The reason why we're together is because of Jesus, not because we're committed to one another first. Imagine if, let's say, Iron Horse, and we'll talk about this during our members meeting, but if Iron Horse and the San Ramon School District says, no more, schools, uh, churches cannot meet, they cancel all classes because of the virus. And this is a real possibility, actually. We're going to talk about this, is that they might say, starting this week, no one can use school properties. What do we do? We meet at a park. It's a possibility. Now, will you come? If it's based solely on community, many people might not. Because you might say, you know what? It's a little inconvenient to meet at a park. Some of you might think, wow, park, that's great. But for some, it's, I don't want to worship at a park. And let's say suddenly we can't even worship at a park. Let's say we have to worship online through YouTube or something. Would you come? Then it's, I really don't want to meet. What joins us together cannot be just simply about the convenience of being together, which isn't always so convenient, but there's less convenient points of meeting. It gets harder as the difficulties come. That actually happens in the early church. That's happening throughout the world in places like the Middle East and in different parts of uh, Far East Asia is that to gather together risks your life or your economic status. So it really means not commitment to one another ultimately, but commitment to Christ. And if you're meeting because you follow Christ, because you're going to be faithful, because you're going to overcome, well, that's that same spirit that overcomes false teachers, false prophecies false words. So we gather not because we're friends. And that is the number one challenge that I would say we all have when we think about community. It's the challenge that we have and our children have. But think of it this way, is that if I am gathering solely, my primary number one reason is I like the people who I am with here. A few things about that. First of all, there might come a day where you might not like the people 
because it only takes one hurt feeling to change all that. And also, if we're gathering just because we like people, it will never sustain itself. Eventually, that will fade. And when our children see that we're gathering because we like people, then it shouldn't surprise us that they're gathering because they like each other, they're friends, versus I want to learn. I like what you're teaching. That teaching is for my soul. It feeds my soul. And I need that more than anything else. That's why we gather together. And it's what sustains us. It's what has sustained the church throughout the centuries. Without it, it would have dissipated a long time ago. There are people throughout church history that have been burnt at the stake because they believe God's word. Well, people like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe, who, who contended for having an, a Bible in the vernacular, in English, so that the English common folk, the poor people, rather than reading it in Latin, which they could never read the Vulgate, they decided we need to translate the Greek and the Hebrew into the, the common language, into English. And because of that, they were burned at the stake. John Bunyan was a pastor in the 1600s. And he was a writer. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, you know, a very classic Christian book. He was given an option in England to stop preaching about Christ and his gospel or be imprisoned. Now, for if he was a single man, while that would be very difficult, it's much more difficult when you're married. And it's much more difficult when you have children, which he did. And it's even much more difficult when one of those children was blind and he knew that if he were to go to prison, his family would have very little food to eat. They would have to beg for their food. So he's left with a choice. Stop preaching the gospel, go to prison and see his family suffer, his own blind child, and have to beg to survive. He chose to go to prison. He was in prison for 12 years. And this is what he wrote. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. This is the choice that you make when you follow Christ. It's a choice that we all have to make. You know, in this era where so many people are so afraid about simply touching something that someone else touched, it's remarkable when we think about, I wonder what, and again, we'll talk about this during our members meeting, just different things about the virus and how to be, how to just be discerning. But at the end of the day, it really is a question of how much do we trust the Lord? Is this the end of our lives or the beginning? If we were to even die, is this the end or the beginning? As we spoke about only at the beginning of this year, uh, the previous year about heaven, is that true or mythology? These things must drive the way that we think. Again, it's not to say let's not be discerning, let's not take proactive steps, let's not be wise, and we're going to do all that. But we never are driven by fear, but just by wisdom and discernment. Either these men were crazy, or they believe that the Bible and what it said was absolutely true, that Jesus is the Son of God, the living Lord, the gospel is good news, that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, that the gospel, Christ crucified, is of first importance in his life and in the life of the Christian, 
that we have to mean that to be true. And if we take that for granted, then we will follow smart people, uh, people who are charismatic, personable, compassionate, sincere. But again, Paul said, even if angels were to give, or, or even the apostles, or even if Peter or Paul were to come and say, here's a different gospel, he says, don't follow it. Because if you follow that, you're to be accursed. James describes this mentality as being double-minded, tossed and fro by the waves. So that is our world and our culture is that it just never ends. The new cycle never stops changing from one uh, just challenge and trauma and tragedy to the next. And it just keeps on going. And we have a choice. Are we going to be tossed to and fro by every single tragedy that falls wayside next to us? Or are we going to stand on the solid rock of Christ? Martin Luther, when he was standing before the Diet of Worms, he basically said, to follow Christ, that's the only safe place. To do anything else, even if it was to be burned at the stake, would be, if he were to try to save his own life, that would be the place of being unsafe or having a lack of safety. You think about it this way, where is it most safe? Following Christ or anything else? We sing a song that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I hope that we understand that to be true. So that's what John is saying. He's saying, you have overcome. You remain faithful. You've overcome false teaching. You've overcome all this by Christ and his word. The second set of pronouns describe a group of people. John writes, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. So when John uses they, who is he referring to? He's referring to those false teachers, people who are in the church, but he's also referring to those people who are in the church who are of the world. That, that is to say, people who are at the core opposed to Christ, even though their words don't sound like it. If you were to listen, if they, someone were up here saying um, the words that false teachers were saying, you might have a hard time discerning, I don't understand what's so bad about that, until you evaluate all of the implications. According to this, the they, it's composed of people who are opposed to Christ. John states that in verse 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's not that they are the Antichrist, but they have a spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. That is to say that these are people who are opposed to Christ. They are Antichrist. They have a opposite of Jesus type of spirit. And the opposite of Jesus type of spirit is the one that does not place and surrender their lives to Jesus, to God. Instead, they hold all of their lives to themselves. They submit not to the authority of God at all. And so they are there to do everything possible to sustain themselves, to do what is right in their own eyes. That is the message of everybody who is opposed to God. Whatever is right for themselves, that's how they live. Secondly is that 
They speak the world's language. They speak from the world. And what is this language? At the core, it means that your world for you is defined by the world's priorities. And what are the world's priorities? Money, wealth, power, prestige, fame, honor. All of these things control your decisions, your priorities, your plans, and they spill out of you every time you speak. You can't help it because it's a part of you. And that's what that person is like. They are always speaking out of the world's priorities. Jesus makes this clear in Luke 6, 45. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This happens, again, inside the church. These words are so filled, not just with anti-Christian words, but Christian words. They use words like grace, Jesus, confession. And because the words are similar, gospel, all those words are so similar that that's why it's so deceptive. Jordano Tamfu is a professor at Bethlehem Seminary in Minnesota. And he's from Cameroon and he shares this story. He says, I live in Cameroon where the prosperity gospel cannot be escaped. I recently preached a sermon on God's sovereignty and salvation at a Baptist conference. Immediately after I stepped down from the pulpit, I heard the next speaker shout, God's plan for you is success. I hope, I'm hoping someone saw the inconsistency. Now, if you listen to that sentence, God's plan for you is success. Maybe you're thinking, what's wrong with that sentence? I thought that was true. And you might have quoted a text like Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. And maybe you've used that until, but you got to read all of Jeremiah 29 and recognize that usually that verse is taken way out of context. And this verse, God's greatest goal for you is not that you would be prosperous and successful. His greatest goal for you is that you would find your hope and rest in him. And the promise is that as you do so, you will be satisfied. That might mean actually the opposite of worldly success. And here's the challenge is that we have to be able to discern. Here's what the big picture of the Bible says. And I have to understand how little phrases fit alongside that big picture. Because I could take any small verse out of the Bible, rip it out of its context and make it fit so that it makes everything that God wants for us to be wealthy, to be powerful, to be famous. We have to see that there is an inconsistency. And that inconsistency has to be really carefully understood. And it does mean not being lazy. It does mean asking questions, research, studying, examining, exploring. It does mean being a Berean, being, as we saw last week, being eager, not cynical. You're listening to a message and you're saying, I want to know God's word. And I'm hoping that this person who is delivering it today is going to preach Christ and him crucified. And I'm going to understand it. And so you're eager. And then you start examining. And if there's any point that you're really thrown off, you actually send an email, research, look it up, find, question. Actually, I'm thankful. It happened to me this week. 
Someone actually questioned, hey, you thought you said this. And I think that's exactly what, well, maybe my email inbox is going to be flooded with questions. And that's a good thing. If I say something that you think, I don't understand that, you need to question it. But I hope you question it eagerly. And wherever you go, whatever church you visit, or maybe in the future you're transitioning to a new church, that you're eager to hear God's word. And you're not going in with this automatic cynical heart. They better serve me. So you're eager, but then you examine. And then as you're examining, if you are blessed because you've heard Christ glorified and your love for God's word is growing, then your faith is strengthened. And actually that impacts you to impact other people. That's the blessing. That's the fruitfulness that comes out of all of this. The world is exactly the opposite. They're not about Christ. They're about yourself. Hey, make your family really prosperous. If you want to really be great at business, follow Jesus. He's the next, he's the best CEO. He has all these things. And there are books out there about that. Jesus as CEO. That's not the goal of the Christian life. And so we have to be discerning enough to be able to sense, uh oh, something's amiss. I need to see. The last set of pronouns is the most critical ones of all. It's the he and he in verse four. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I refer to this Bible verse time and time again. First John four, four. It is such a treasure. It is a promise. It's actually piggybacking off of another one of my favorite Bible verses is what John, uh, John records Jesus saying in John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's the same idea that G- what Jesus said in John 16.33, and John obviously heard it, and he's basically restating it, saying, he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And with that, I really see John revealing a few things. First is that he reveals that we should have confidence. We can be really confident in this world. We know that because of he, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, who is indwelling in us as Christians, that we can be firmly confident of our ultimate outcome. We don't have to be afraid because we know the ultimate outcome of our lives. I think sometimes we forget that. We have to have an eternal perspective. And so therefore, we remember that he has overcome the world. It's not that he might, he has. And we never have to doubt that this is true. First John 4, 4 is a resounding proclamation that we as Christians who believe in a sovereign Christ who is creator and Lord of all, he is ultimately and forever victorious. Now think about this. He's not only conquered sin, but he's conquered death. And he's conquered the devil. That means that every time some dictator, and there are going to be many more, there are going to be many more Stalins and Hitlers in this world. There are going to be many more cult leaders and many more false teachers and many more prophets who are going to try to destroy the church and undo the gospel. And every time that comes along, we need not be afraid. We can be confident that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. 
Do you know that disease is not a new thing? I don't know if you know that. Do you know that there have actually been all sorts of deadly plagues and viruses all throughout human history? And God is the God who oversees not just the biggest, largest stars and galaxies in the world, but he oversees atoms and amoebas, bacteria, and viruses. And sometimes we forget that. We think that, well, no, God, you're not really in control, are you? Last time I looked, Stalin and Mao and Nero and Diocletian and Reverend Moon and Arius and Mary Baker Eddy and Joseph Smith, if you don't know who they are, a lot of them are cult leaders. They're all in the dust. You know, they're not around walking around torturing people, deceiving people. And unless they've all repented, they're suffering eternally right now. So this verse, 1 John 4, 4, tells us that Jesus is over, has overcome and we can be confident of that. We never have to doubt that. That should not, um, pass us by. It should make us not afraid. Secondly, it means that there's a fight in, at, at hand. Verse 4 means there is a fight for your soul, for your life, for your loved ones. This is spiritual battle. The he who is in the world is, has either, is either the Antichrist, the devil, the ones with the spirit of the Antichrist, all of them wrapped up in one. That is to say that there's a lot of people against me and you. And what their main desire is that you would turn away from Christ, that you would be afraid, that you would doubt, that you'd be angry, that you'd be jealous. And anything possible to keep you from trusting Christ and his word. And so he's going to do all that he can to make you apathetic towards God's word, distracted or distorted. And he's going to do all three of those things to try to twist and change and influence you enough that you avoid God's word on a regular basis. Remember, the greatest problem John is facing here is from within. People, leaders, are using false ideas about Jesus to turn people away from Jesus. And here's the thing. You cannot turn Christians away from Jesus apart from God's word. It's not like they come in and start talking about cartoons or the latest movie. They talk about God's word. They know about the Bible. Sometimes they know a lot. Sometimes they know a little. And because people don't know it enough, you become swayed by it because it sounds convincing, because people are sincere and passionate. And we don't take up what Paul calls the sword of the spirit or gird our loins with the belt of truth. We're distracted. Think of a, a physical war. Your regiment, you're in um, the army, you're in an army regiment. And your commander says, you need to go and take that hill. And so that hill is being defended by a huge force of tanks and machine gun nests all over. And so the commander says, all right, everyone, pack up your gear, get your weapons, and let's get ready to fight. And so you go and you look and you gather up your cell phone and your coffee mug and you go, go out to battle. 
If you did that, you'd be a fool. My friends, that's what we're doing spiritually. You know, we're supposed to be fighting a war, and the weapon is God's word. And if we're trying to fight this spiritual battle without God's word, then it is really no different than fighting a military, physical military war with your phone and a coffee mug. We are going into battle without our main weapon. And the problem is, and it's a grave problem, is that this is not a fight for your life, like a physical war. It's a fight for your eternal soul. So for a physical war, you might die at 30 years old as a you're fighting in a battle, whatever it might be. But in a spiritual war, if you were to lose, you lose eternally. The devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy you. And he does this by causing me and you to ignore and neglect his word because we don't have time, we're distracted, we have too many things to do, it's not that important. So what will you do? How are you going to respond? Won't you pick up your Bibles? St. Augustine, when he was first came to know the Lord and he said that he heard, this is at him before he knew Christ. He heard two children saying, take and read, take and read. And that's where he opened scripture. And if you ever read confessions or know about it, that's where he came to know Christ. I really believe some of us need to experience that. Take and read, take and read, because we've forgotten. That's the means by which we are able to live this life and to fight the fight of faith. Listen to what John says in verse 6. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we know this, the difference between the spirit and the truth and the spirit of error? By listening to us. Who is us? The apostles. How do we today know the apostles? Through their word. Meaning that you cannot discern error and truth apart from God's word. And if you are not going into God's word regularly, you are susceptible to incredible danger. Without the Bible, without knowing it, without understanding it, John makes it clear that you will be susceptible to false teaching and to the devil. There is so much false teaching outside and inside the church. It is all over the place. And unless you are regularly just sinking in deep into God's word. It'll be hard to tell. And trust me, it'll be hard to tell your own children. Lastly is the gospel. How is he greater than the devil? How is Jesus greater than the devil? How is Jesus overcoming the world? We know one thing. He didn't overcome it militarily or politically. He didn't buy it. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't go to any universities and have multiple degrees to figure out, okay, I have this plan because I've studied a long time and I've figured it out. Listen to how Paul describes how Jesus overcame. Colossians 2, 12 through 15. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 15. By nailing it to the cross, by all of our debt, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That text is such a clear indicator of the fact that it is the gospel that overcomes the power of Satan while canceling all of our debt. At the cross, Jesus destroys Satan and his power. He crushes every accusation that the devil throws at you when he says, you're no good. God's word says, I've loved you with a loving kindness. I've drawn you with everlasting love. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we are no longer slaves, but a son. And since a son, an heir. When, whenever Satan says you are a failure, you know, you think you, you know, you think you know God? Well, look at how many times you mess up. Look how badly you've hurt somebody. God's word is just rich with reminding you that Christ has loved you. That's why he died on the cross for you. Whenever you hear, he doesn't care for you. See, you're struggling financially. You're sick. Your loved one is sick. God's word just stands by us saying that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil for I'm with you. I mean, just word after word that countermands every single thing that Satan throws at you. But it is through his word and it is through that cross because the cross, as we see what Paul says here, is the means by which we see the truth of God's word. It's promise fulfilled. It's mission accomplished. And so with that, we never need to believe the lies. Jesus disarmed the devil and every false teaching that says we can save ourselves. Remember what people shouted to Jesus at the cross? If you are the Messiah, if you are that person, you who actually saved others, why don't you come off that cross and save yourself? But it's ironic, he chose not to save himself so that people who, like us, who could never save ourselves, he chose to stay on that cross to save us. We can't save ourselves. He could have saved himself, actually. He could have come down from that cross, but he chose not to so that he could save me and you who could never save ourselves. And that's the irony of what they were shouting. They just couldn't understand. And he was there saying, I'm staying on that cross. Not because he couldn't save himself, but because he wanted to save me and you. This is the gospel. Now I want you to go back and look at Colossians 2 again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. This is where I love the fullness of the, the church of God because we get to do this today. We actually get to see two people baptized. And what we're seeing is we're seeing in that baptism, Jesus on that cross saying, I gave my life for these two people. And their sins, though they were full of sin, they're now dead to sin. 
And when they're dead to sin, I'm going to rise from this cross. It's not going to hold me down. I've overcome. And with that, everyone will overcome with me. And they're raised together. And forever, Satan has lost. He's been defeated. The sign of baptism is the beautiful picture of Christ overcoming. Overcoming sin, overcoming death, overcoming the devil, overcoming false teaching. All of this to say that right now we are declared righteous by the Father who welcomes us home. That's why we gather. That's why we're here. And that's why we're going to see and witness our baptism together. So with that, we could all stand and rise, and we're going to go outside, form a semicircle outside, um, around the, the baptistry, our little kiddie pool, and then uh, we'll have communion out there as well. So let's we're continuing worship, so please let's uh, worship the Lord together.